parents came here with like almost nothing, right? Like a couple hundred bucks, barely knew how to speak English, you know, first check into Lyft and still on board there, Twitch, Twitter, Okta, so and so forth. We talk about a lot of these mental models we have about why is now the right time to build a business? And what are these earned secrets that they have about proprietary insights that no one else has, but that they have? Welcome to Worth, a platform for young people in tech to share their unique stories. Pretty excited to release what is, as far as we know, the first podcast interview with Sean Shu. Sean was recently named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 in Venture Capital list, and he's currently a senior associate at Floodgate. Something that really struck me from this conversation was the gratitude that Sean has and the perspective he's gained through an unusually diverse set of experiences. These encompass launching European markets for Square, investing in brilliant student founders at Dormroom Fund, and now learning under the legendary Ant Co. and Mike Maples Jr. at Floodgate. Please enjoy this deep dive into Sean Shu's story. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on. And I think that a good place to start would be your childhood, growing up in SF's backyard, and then if you're willing to share also a little bit about your family's history. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm an immigrant to this country. So when I was two years old, I was born in China in like the icy north of the country. This is a city called Harbin, one of the coldest parts of, of the country, I'd say. And my parents came to America when I was two years old. So my dad was going to grad school at uh, Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. So actually, I spent the first couple of years of my life out in Washington. I remember those years very fondly because my parents came here with like almost nothing, right? Like a couple hundred bucks, barely knew how to speak English. And they were in this grad school program and my dad was hustling at the local Chinese restaurant for three bucks an hour. And I would go to this Chinese restaurant with him all the time and I would just kind of like be that three, four year old kid delivering the receipt with the fortune cookies saying like, hey, if you really like the food, maybe you should tip a little, a few bucks, right? So I was just hustling for tips when I was a kid, working with my dad in these Chinese restaurants. My dad really wanted to work in power plants, couldn't find a job in power plants, uh, and said, well, why don't we try this thing working in semiconductors? And uh, that's exactly what we did. My family moved here. My brother was born out here in America, and we moved to Silicon Valley. I grew up in Sunnyvale, and we kind of lived this American dream, you know? At first, it was the six of us. It was my parents, me and my brother, and my grandparents and my mom, on my mom's side, six of us living out of this one-bedroom apartment down in Sunnyvale and not-so-great neighborhood. And as we watched this whole technology wave happen, my parents got better-paying jobs. They became more senior engineers, and uh, uh, we were able to move into a nice home in, in Sunnyvale and kind of lived an idyllic childhood in Silicon Valley, if you can believe it. Yeah, semiconductors were probably a good pick there in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really great. I eventually kind of went to Homestead High School, famous because uh, Jobs and Wozniak uh, went to school there and built uh, Apple Computer in a house uh, nearby, right? And uh, a lot of my friends, their parents were engineers. They worked in these technology companies in high school. A lot of my formative experiences were with teachers and mentors and advisors who worked at startups or were angel investors or venture capitalists. I kind of got a taste of that really early on. They started teaching us how to code in eighth grade, you know, and it's just kind of like this, this whole Silicon Valley world. And it was a really interesting way to grow up. And then I left for college it was, uh, and then they kind of had a whole different experience. You have this childhood steeped in tech. Yeah. Did you know that 
that was something you were interested in pursuing when you made your way down to Southern California? Actually, when I graduated, I was like, I'm never coming back to Silicon Valley. There must be a whole world out there that's bigger than tech and startups and like kind of wanted to explore that. At one point, I thought I wanted to be a, a brand manager and work in brand strategy like for the rest of my life. I also was one of those kids that said, why would anyone leave America? America is the best country in the world. Why would anyone leave this country? And I, I realized that I was wrong on both counts. So I studied abroad in uh, at Cambridge in the UK and kind of opened my whole mind to this world outside of the United States, right? That's when I first got my chance to backpack across Europe and I traveled a little bit uh, on the Barbary Coast and went to North Africa and kind of just, it was exposed to people so different than me and I was just realized like, wow, this, this, this is a big world out there and there's so many people that are different than me, but we're also so alike in so many ways that it sparked within me this lifelong passion for different cultures, travel, understanding why different countries are the way they are, why different economies are built the way they are, and what makes us all the same and what makes us all different. That was a guiding force in what I wanted to do. Like I really wanted to figure out a way to find opportunities to allow me to travel for a living, but also be exposed to different cultures and build kind of opportunities the way that I had in Silicon Valley for everybody. And I kind of fell back into technology, right? I realized that I really want to work on this globalization story, I want to center, frame my career around that. And I was quickly realizing that a lot of the ways that people are accessing opportunity in these emerging markets was through technology, building technology companies or helping technology companies from abroad expand in their home countries. And I wanted to be part of that story. So right out of college, I became a consultant and I was able to kind of uh, finagle my, my way in this job. I found opportunities to only focus on international uh, cases. And so helped Fortune 500 companies go into emerging markets or evaluate how they should think about markets like the BRIC countries, China, India, Brazil, and Russia. And that was like a wonderful experience in itself. Uh, I took a sabbatical during that time to go to Stanford, where there was a post-baccalaureate program that was running at the GSB, essentially a program to give you a taste of what business school would be like. I took it because I really wanted to get smart on much more of my quant skills. And I got an opportunity to do that. But while I was at Stanford, I reconnected with a friend of mine that I had met at Cambridge, who was hosting a barbecue for July 4th. At this barbecue, I reconnected with an old high school friend who uh, is now one of my closest friends, who is a founder and one of the most impressive people I've ever met. Uh, and he was starting a company, uh, a nonprofit actually. And when I heard about this, I, you know, I, I kind of was like, you got to let me go and join the ground floor of what you're building. I would love to help you build this thing. And, and that thing became this nonprofit called Bayes Impact, where I joined as one of the first uh, employees there and uh, helped them build this nonprofit that went through Y Combinator. And uh, effectively, we were trying to build software for government agencies, nonprofits, leveraging data science. And that, that was my first kind of reintroduction to Silicon Valley as a person who was excited about uh, emerging markets, was excited about technology. And the thing that kind of convinced me to join this nonprofit was the promise of building these solutions for government agencies or nonprofits that were focused on uh, emerging markets, right? So government agencies in, in Bangladesh or Nigeria, working with those folks. And today it's still kind of a vibrant nonprofit building solutions in France. And we were also able to build some cool things here in the US. But that was my reintroduction to Silicon Valley. I met all the, the venture people and startup people that I wanted and politics people as well. And, and, and from there, my career kind of went in a different direction.
Yeah, I would imagine some of those experiences tied directly to what you were working on next at Vungle. Is that accurate? Yeah, so at Bayes, it's an awesome opportunity. One of the cool things I got the chance to do there was organize events that brought the data science community together. I ran this hackathon where we were putting together 200, 300 data scientists in a room and effectively bring luminaries that are like Jerry Yang, who's founded Yahoo, and Alexis Hanian, who founded Reddit, and Joe Lonsdale, who founded Palantir. They were all involved in judging these projects and got a chance to really meet some interesting people. And sorry, I'll answer your question directly. With Bayes, I found that I wanted to still go back and work in emerging markets and work on international technology, international expansion for technology products. I found that I wasn't able to really do that at Bayes. It was really important for me to continue working on that international story for myself, both out of personal passion and kind of just long run career skill development. So my friend Eric, who was the co-founder at Bayes, he introduced me to the um, CEO and founder of Bungle and some of the leadership team there. Eric had previously been a venture capitalist and he was the guy who, 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 who brought Bungle in as an investment for consideration at his venture fund. And so I had gotten to know the team there. So Eric introduced me to the Mongol folks. We hit it off and it was an awesome opportunity to directly focus on international expansion as well as some business development projects on the team. It was at the time 200 people. And so I kind of just was a Swiss army knife and deployed anywhere and everywhere as it relates to international expansion, as it relates to business development projects, as it relates to leveraging some of those consulting skills that I had to be kind of an in-house analyst and worked with the team to determine which markets are interesting for us. What parts of the world should we be doubling down on? I was able to travel uh, quite extensively around, around Asia to figure out how Bungle should be positioned there. Made quite a few trips to China, working with the team to determine what's the right strategy to deploy in China, what are the right sales op processes that we should be putting in place, what kind of team should we be building out there. And so I was able to have this opportunity to do this in China, in Japan, in South Korea, in Singapore and in India, Thailand, Vietnam, you name it, and was able to be the first boots on the ground in Southeast Asia as well, helping us figure out what clients that we want to bring on there. And I should probably also reference what Bungle is. Yeah. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Bungle is a, a mobile video advertising company. So if you have ever seen a video ad in a game, for instance, chances are a lot of those ads are coming from powered by Bungle. So building the technology to power advertising in, in these apps, in-app video ads, that ultimately is a key cornerstone in monetization for a lot of developers out there, right? And so super rewarding job meeting a generation of developers, and gaming developers in particular, in all these Asian markets who were building their first companies, building their first games, let's say, and having a conversation with them about how to monetize their, this thing that they built. It was a really rewarding experience. And from there, I'd like to think of myself as a bit of a community builder. And so what I did was I would bring together other international leads at tech startups and we would have dinners together and we just have an off the record conversation about, you know, how, how we were building these companies and how we're thinking about building these companies abroad and what are the most interesting markets to us and how should we be building for those markets. Well, through these dinners, I was fortunate enough to get, get in touch with uh, someone who was at Square who ended up becoming my boss who was looking for more people to help do country launches. And so I went to Square and did a similar job to what I did at Bungle and was brought in and helped think about how to do expansion in the UK and Europe in general and think about writ large, how does Square fit into the global landscape and was able to do a lot of really great, amazing work there as well. 
Yeah, so you have a lot of operating experience launching foreign markets. I believe you've written about this in a Medium post, which we can absolutely link in the show notes, but for someone that's not familiar, what do you think makes a good market to launch in for a company, maybe based in the US and they're looking to expand? In the foreign markets. Man, uh, it's been a several years since I've actually done the work. So things may have changed, but you know, I, I, the go-to-market questions are still the same for me in, in emerging markets. I think before you do anything, I think it makes sense to take stock of the world and understand a little bit of what are the opportunities that are even there, right? Like uh, what I mean by that is having a good sense of what is the market size opportunity. So the, the classic consulting two by two that is very diluted and watered down, but like, think about like market opportunity measured against market friction and how difficult it is to actually launch these markets, right? So by market opportunity, that's pretty simple to evaluate. For Square, for instance, or how much is uh, being spent on credit cards? What are the unit economics look like? What kind of margins can you get? Uh, how well can you price a product in a certain market? And so evaluating the, the profit potential of particular markets is something that I think about. The friction part of it is how easy is it to launch a net new product in these markets, right? Is it the case where you can adapt an existing product and it's a pretty easy adaptation and then you can launch that product and redeploy it? Or do you have to build net new features to make a particular product work particularly as it relates to compliance in Europe, for instance, like making sure that it complies with GDPR or complying with any sort of licenses that you need, may need to make sure that a certain product works. That's evaluated against how much of an opportunity that a particular country might have. So I think for, for anyone thinking about a new market, you probably shouldn't launch in a market where it's extremely painful to build new features to be able to get there, unless it's a table stakes market to think about. This makes sense a lot for companies that are driven by product launches. It, it makes less sense for countries that are kind of like at Bungle where you turn on your product, your product is available anywhere, right? Anyone can download Bungle SDK and power monetization through ads. It doesn't matter whether you're in India or if you're in Canada, right? And so in a case where that, it, it's less about the market launch, it's much more about sales and marketing growth and the conscious decision of how to think about which markets we should be prioritizing. It, it had much more to do with what is the velocity by which we can build revenue in certain markets. And that has relates to number of customers, the prices you can charge and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you've also written about kind of intentionally designing experiences to broaden your perspectives. And yeah. You spoke to this a little bit earlier about how it integrates with the way you approach investing now and some aspects of your childhood. Can you talk about some memories that stick out just from going to Eastern Europe or North Africa or even North Korea? Yeah, so these are formative experiences in my life. They, they, they relate to how I invest today for sure, but it's more profoundly personal than it is professional. So my experience in North Korea was super educational. I had that opportunity because I was working with folks at Bungle who had gone previously with this nonprofit called Chosun Exchange. And they are uh, essentially organized trips to North Korea with entrepreneurs and operators who are mentoring and teaching entrepreneurs there. So we're not talking about people building like their version of Google, right? And we're talking about people building their first grocery stores, which I was fortunate enough to, to tour or the first cafes and differentiated restaurants. And I could speak about this for, for hours, but fundamentally, I, I really wanted an experience to see what a country and economy that looked fairly close to what my parents or grandparents grew up in. I wanted a little bit of understanding of what that felt like. 
And ultimately, it was really interesting to me. I had met people there who had been born and raised and lived their entire lives in North Korea. And they were aware of some of the things that they need to, to build a more stable economy. Like it was inspired by these people who had personal ingenuity and resourcefulness to go start their own businesses and to start their own kind of pathway to setting themselves up for survival. Like it is such a stark contrast between North and South Korea. If you were to go to Seoul and see the mega city that they've built, the, the extreme prosperity that they've been able to establish there, and you go across the border to Pyongyang and see this dark, stark contrast. It is the most controlled society that I've ever seen. And it was difficult to, to, to see it because the kind of choices that these people could make are so different than the choices that you and I can make. That's really interesting. So you were, you were at Square and then you made the jump to business school, which is something the tech world loves to hate on. Um, yeah. For better or worse, how did you make that decision and what was your experience like? Yeah. So a bunch of things happened in 2016. So on the one hand, Brexit happened and we were trying to build Square in the UK and in Europe. And now a lot of stuff was thrown into question, right? Brexit, no one expected. So that's one point. I think Trump being elected, this reveals a little bit uh, of my politics, but you know, I think I personally um, am opposed to a lot of the things that he says and opposed to a lot of the things that he stands for, especially as it relates to foreign policy. And so this relates a little bit back to what we were talking about with North Korea, having had a chance to visit and having had a chance to kind of meet people in that country. And suddenly now there is rhetoric of North Korea wanting to build nuclear missiles and bomb the hell out of everybody. And it's kind of like a wake up moment where it's like, none of this seems real right now. Things have escalated to a certain degree. And so I really wanted to take a step back and really understand why the world is the way it was and what my place was in it. And I've always loved school. I've always loved grad school. And I discovered the, the Lauder Institute, which is at Penn, which is a joint degree program with Wharton, where you get your MBA, but also you get your um, a master's in international studies, where you get a chance to really understand and study these issues. I really, really wanted to take the time to pursue this intellectual passion and like satisfy this intellectual curiosity, right? I think that's probably the best reason to go to school back to school, I should say. But I also wanted to scratch this itch of venture capital. I'm really interested in this idea that venture is a way to see systems. So if when you're a founder or when you're an operator, you're kind of solving one problem at a time at the company you're at. But as an investor, I feel like you get an opportunity to see a whole system by which all the companies that are trying to solve a particular problem and which ones are solving what problem from what angle. And I really like that about venture. I figured why not go to Wharton and find opportunities to both study some of these foreign policy questions I had and why the world works the way it works and also study venture capital and see if there's ways that I can leverage a position in venture to move the needle on some of these challenges. I definitely had some pushback on going to, to Penn. A lot of my friends basically said, you're wasting the best years of your life. These are the prime years of your 20s. But I, I did it because I really cared about uh, these foreign policy questions. And I knew that if I had stayed in Silicon Valley, I just would have sucked more and more into startup and startup world, right? And so I'm very grateful that I did. It was a really wonderful two years. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how Dorm Room Fund played a role in that two years? Yeah. 
So this goes back to my experience at Bayes Impact, that nonprofit I mentioned. After having gone through YC, we brought on board members, advisory board members, and one of these board members is this, uh, is this guy named Anjne, and I was super impressed by this guy, right? He always gave best advice in these meetings. He was a super kind guy. Later, I found out that you know, he was a partner at Kleiner Perkins and helped them start up their seed stage practice. And then I found out that he's 22 years old. I was like, how the hell are you 22 years old, partner at Kleiner Perkins? Like, how, how did this all happen? And he, he basically kind of shrugged and was just like, oh, I was, you know, I was a, I was a partner at Norman Fund uh, while he's a student at Stanford. And I was just like, oh my God, like, what is that? Tell me more about that, right? And I told myself, if I ever go back to school, I got to look this, this organization up. And that's basically what I did. I, I went to, to, to Penn. I think the first week I was at Penn, I reached out back to Anjane, who's now a founder of an awesome company called Ubiquity6. And, and I basically said, you got to introduce me to these folks. Can you put me in touch? Um, and he did. I met all the people there. And from the get-go, every single person that I've met through this organization has been, well, now has become family, but also just impressive hustlers who are the smartest people in tech and venture and startups that are in school today. I kind of found my, my community. And so I joined Darwin Fund. I was fortunate to be selected as one of the partners there and just had an amazing two-year run. And now as an alum, even still today, I'm finding awesome collaboration opportunities with people that I've met through the community. But for those of you who don't know, Dorman Fund is this amazing venture fund backed by first-round capital that is empowered um, as students to invest in student-founded companies. And so for two years, all I did was run around and, and meet um, really interesting founders who are still in school who wanted to build something exciting. And for the best of them, I brought them forward to our community. And as a group, we made decisions on which ones to fund. And over the course of two years, I funded more than 20 companies, and some of them of which are doing really cool things now, uh, raising money and yeah, scaling up. And it's just been a pleasure to be part of that ecosystem. Yeah. Are there any... Highlights or lowlights or funny stories from that time that you'd be willing to share? It's just the people, man. Every community, it's the people that make it, right? And I think that not a day goes by where I just like feel outclassed by every person that I'm speaking with and who are just brilliant people. And a lot of them are younger than me. But I mean, these 18, 19, 20 year olds are building companies and raising millions of dollars and doing incredible things with their companies. And I'm very fortunate to, to have met them. I guess lowlights. It's not necessarily low lights, but there's a couple companies where I pushed forward, where I pounded the table and I said, these are companies I want to get through. I think we should invest in them. I think it would be a big mistake if we don't, right? And each of those, there's a couple of them where I was unanimously kind of like voted out. Whereas I said yes and everyone else said no. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm, there's something wrong with me here. Like I have huge conviction on these companies. What am I missing that all of these, you know, smart friends that I have think I'm wrong on? Um, those are definitely low lights. But I think the way that I've turned this around is that, you know, when venture is this contrarian business, right? You need to be non-consensus, but you have to be right, as, as my boss Mike says. And I think that for every one of those unanimous no's that I got, I've been vindicated in some way. Vindicated so far. They may still totally fail, but for one of them, the fund I met invested in the company. My boss, Ann, found something really exciting about that particular company. Another one got into YC and has done really well for themselves. And, you know, it's jury still out because these are still early stage companies, but I, like, uh, there's a measure of indication here where it's like, wow, it wasn't just me that really believes in these companies. And I've learned to like stick to my guns. And even if you have all these people who are saying, there's no way this will work, there's no way this will work, right? If you really believe in it, you believe in the company, you believe in the people, you really want to stick by these founders and say, these are people that I want to go to bat for and vouch for. 
do it. And I've learned that those, nothing but good things comes from that. That's really interesting. How do, you, how do you score that? How do you think about either gaining consensus or making your conviction felt to the other people in the room? Yeah, I think that's a challenge. I think one of the big takeaways I got from Dorman Fund, and Dorman Fund is built on consensus. I think that other venture funds, um, like institutional venture funds, seed stage funds, the fund that I'm at, right, is not a consensus fund. One person can say yes and everyone else can say no and that'll still get done. So uh, I think that one thing I learned from that is you really have to dig into the decision-making model of every venture fund. They're all so different and it's all just dependent on culture of the fund. But with Dorman Fund, and I really enjoyed the consensus, driven piece of that. One of my favorite parts of Dorman Fund was being in the room and yelling at your best friends and saying, you're totally wrong. This is why you're totally wrong. But then afterwards going to get ramen and just, you know, having a good time and kind of laughing about how, how heated you got. I have learned that for myself, I need to work on how to better articulate my arguments for companies. And, and so I don't have a good answer for how do you best articulate it. I, I've now learned to prepare myself for those debates, anticipate questions, do your research, uh, come prepared with data, but there are some subjects you can't prepare for because it's a subject that you didn't think about preparing for, and therefore that's when I've learned, okay, I need to take this back and think about that and come back to you with a response. In some cases, you have the benefit of time to go back and say, okay, I thought about your question, your pushback, and this is my answer to you. In other cases, in many cases with Dormant Fund, you don't. We try to give an answer back to a founder within 24 hours, and so you typically just don't have the time to come up with a good answer. And so... For me, the thing that works is be prepared and, and be prepared to have these arguments and debates. But I'm fully cognizant of the fact that I need to improve how to be more thoughtful on my feet <laughs> with these uh, debates. At Floodgate, I don't necessarily have that problem as much just because, uh, again, it's not necessarily as consensus-driven as Drummond Fund or uh, perhaps for sure. So that was part one. You'll find the rest of this conversation with Sean in part two. As always, you can find more information at worth.card.co. That's W-O-R-T-H dot C-A-R-D dot C-O. Thanks.